this edition of Stories of Strange Women. We're your hosts. I'm Tanya Hurley. And I'm Tracy Hurley-Martin. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming music icon Kate Pearson of the B-52s. We went up to her studio in Woodstock and to talk to her. And it was like going from the forest, the wilds of Woodstock, and you open this door of a cabin and you're transported like a portal, transported into Planet Claire. You know, it's all the mid-century furniture, the psychedelic colors. And she's in the process of getting together her wardrobe for an auction. And um, there are racks and racks and racks of Kate Kate Pearson clothes. Yeah costumes oh. which to me that i was like wow we're talking to kate pearson like when when you see all, all of her iconic clothes there yeah. um so that was that was very exciting and it was also exciting to talk to her about her music career and her life yeah um which has been an extraordinary one and i, I think the b-52s are, are known as a party band but they're very influential and important and i hope they get that recognition that they so desperately you know deserve and how each one in the band is just so talented yeah musically right gifted yeah and how they all met and um, well you know how dedicated i mean when we did publicity for the b-52s yeah yeah so we were at radio city and um they had just done sound check and it was pouring down rain. This was before Uber, and you cannot get a cab in New York City when it's raining. So right before the show, Kate said, I, I, I want to have a vocal lesson. I need to have a vocal lesson. And I was like, oh, no. And she had to don't. go to her teacher. The teacher yes. wasn't coming there. No, and it was it was far. It was like on the Upper West Side or something. And um, I was just in my head begging her, please don't. She's, I mean, she's... She, she sounds amazing and she was convinced that she absolutely needed a vocal lesson and she went (laughs) and I (laughs) I she made it back she made it back yeah in the nick of time and but that's when that's when we had the Gene Simmons encounter the me too encounter where he was like kind of sleazy no I don't remember that I do I was so worried about Kate not returning well that was your responsibility yes so <laughs> deliver the talent but I just they're so authentic they're so authentic they're they're unlike any other band or people they're I've ever themselves. met yeah. yeah I mean I remember having a bagel with Fred one day and he just all of a sudden started talking about how Ruth Buzzy is the greatest actress of our time and I'm like wow he's he's serious right yeah. now and um, this is what it is. This is yeah. who they are. Mm-hmm. And so it was really uh, a fun, enlightening experience to work with them as a band. Yeah. And I think you'll get a lot out of this interview. Absolutely. Yeah. About sticking to your dreams and even finding out. I mean, Kate just fairly recently in the past decade gained confidence in her songwriting and how she's still evolving as an artist. Yeah. So without further ado, Please take a listen to this interview with the lovely Kate Pearson. So can you tell us a little bit um, about growing up and what you were like as a child? And you grew up in New Jersey, yes. correct? Did Fred grow up in New Jersey? Fred did too, yeah. Okay, so and it's you and Fred, and that's like the north yeah, and the south. Jersey, there, Georgia and... connection. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, well, Fred and I didn't know each other, but he was, his aunt and uncle lived like right next in the Lynnhurst in the next town over. So, you know, who knows, we might have passed each other some, you know, mm -hmm. but, Yeah, um, I'd like to think so. I know, but it was... Mythologize the whole thing. Well, I do believe in fate because... <laughs> yeah sort of the hand of fate took over but when I was a kid my father was a, a jazz guitar player and he was in a big band not a noted it was just a local band and he played and he always played guitar and he once he got married and you know we had he had family he started working um, eventually for this Curtis Wright Corporation x-raying airplane parts which is not a great job, it's dark, but he always was good humor and I take after him, I'm like optimistic and mm -hmm. you know, I always have, I feel like I inherited some sort of uh, optimistic spirit from him. Mm -hmm. But he, um, he always played guitar at home and he played in local plays, he was like, you know, played guitar and he, so I used to sit on his lap and strum, you know, and he played the chords. So I, I always wanted to be a singer, always, always, always. And I was in the school choir, and I took piano lessons, and I had a great piano teacher, Martha Michi, whose husband was first violinist to the New York Philharmonic, Alfio Michi. So I had a great uh, experience to go to hear uh, Leonard Bernstein's like young people's concerts. Wow. And so, you know, I had a very good musical background. My father Music played. Music in your blood. Yeah, mm -hmm. and my, my brother played cello. And my father played all kinds of hip stuff, you know. He had, um, you know, jazz, all sorts of jazz, Ella Fitzgerald, and, you know, the whole spectrum of it, and Ema Sumac, and, you know, he had a lot of hipster kind of, you know, K Winding and all these kind of hipster records, too, that were, mm -hmm. you know, pretty, I guess, mainstream in the 50s, but um, 60s. Anyway, I grew up listening to an eclectic mix, and he liked my stuff, too, because I would play Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, and all this you know, music, Beatles, and he, he would listen, and he liked it. He dug it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So going to school and stuff, I mean, did you, were you seen as different? I mean, did you feel different from, every, from yes. your classmates? Yes. Um, I mean, I was an early hippie. Um, no one else in my class, you know, they still had bouffants. It's so strange because to think that they all had these really major bouffants. I mean, they had some really skyrocketing bouffants, tease, tease, tease to the heavens. Mm -hmm. And I had, I just wanted to have hair like Mary Travers. I had long hair. My mother would iron it. I'd lay it on the ironing board and mm -hmm. I grew it as long as I could, parted in the middle, straight. Um, and I made, since these girls seemed to have, I don't know what their job, parents' jobs were, but they had these great you know, like Jackie Kennedy suits and stuff they wore to school with their big hairdos. And so I made some clothes. I really am a horrible sewer. I hate sewing. But I cobbled together some sort of hippie sort of dresses. Because back in the day, you know, you, you couldn't wear pants to school. You had to wear a dress mm -hmm. or some sort of skirt thing. So, um, you know, I made these kind of burlap-y uh, dresses and I definitely stood out. I, there was a folk club, and I was president of the folk club, and we had a, you know, and we had a group um, called the Sun Donuts. It was originally the Sundowners, and there was another, a real band, you know, but we were in high school, but we thought, well, we can't have the same name, so we changed it to the Sun Donuts, and um, so we had, it was a folk protest band, and we wrote our own songs, and we all had protest songs. And, um, you know, the, there were three of us, 
Katha, Diane, and me. And we all had guitars. We had these harmony guitars. And there's oh, only three one women. pictures. Three women. Yeah. Hmm. There's only one picture. I, I can't find any pictures but this one that we were all standing there with a guitar. And I can't find it. I don't know. Oh. And there if was anybody a has a picture of the Sun Donuts out there? I know. Please. <laughs> well, Diane's um, father had a tape recorder. And there was one recording. But I have no idea if there's any way to access that. But Let's anyway... See. We played around. We played for, uh, like, a, I think it was called the Over 80s Club. It was, like, really old people. So we played there. It was a gig, one gig. And Over we 80s. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And um, we just, a small you know, club. played some local gigs. And then I went um, to college, and I played at College Auditorium and, you know, play, kept playing and writing and always had my guitar. And, um, and but then... Well, it's a long story. Should I just keep yeah, on rambling? Yes, <laughs> please. Not long to us. So I'd, I'd hang out in the basement of the of the college in the dorm. There was a, it was like an old brick, you know, classic sort of dorm. And I went downstairs and, and I went to the basement. I hung these Bob Dylan posters around and I'd play. In the, the, there was a dorm uh, mother and she'd come down there and just didn't know what to make of it, you know. But anyway, I, I remember playing... Um, uh, at the school, you know, auditorium, and, and this just, was in Athens, right? No, no this was, was no, this Jersey. was actually in at Wheaton College in Illinois, oh, which is okay. a whole other story, okay. which I won't get okay. into. But then, um, at the end of my two years there, all hell broke loose. Um, my boyfriend Alan Beasley was a major protester of the Vietnam War. I was protesting. I was assistant editor of the paper and was writing, you know, inflammatory columns and mm -hmm. and basically everyone I knew left that after the second year. Either were kicked out. I was on disciplinary probation for refusing to take this sort of punishment called a what was it called? It was called a oh, I can't even remember what it was called, but you basically had to stay in your dorm. Like house arrest? Like if you're late. Yeah, it was like house arrest. It was like... Kidding. And so I just went to the dean and said, I'm not doing it, you know. So I was defiant. And um, so then we all left that year, and I went to uh, Boston. And then we, we rode out to um, Seattle for the summer, and, and then I started going to Boston University and working as um, a nurse's aide. And a, or at first it was a dietary aide and then a nurse's aide at New England Deaconess Hospital and um, Mass General Hospital. My mother wanted me to be a nurse so bad, a teacher or a nurse. Because in her Those mind... Were the two pretty yeah. much That's options. what our grandfather yeah. wanted us to yeah. be a nurse, because that was, you yeah. know, a job. You'd always and you'd have yeah. it. She yeah. said, like, oh, you know, you can't... She told my brother, you can't be an artist. He was an amazing artist, and I couldn't be a musician. And, the, and I said, Mom, the last thing I'll ever be as a teacher or a nurse, <laughs> and you just die forget first. about it. <laughs> um, so then, um, but then I had this job at the hospital as a nurse's aide, which I, I liked. I mean, I did like, I did enjoy helping patients, but, you know, then every now and then someone asked for an enema, and I'd be like, oh, mm -hmm. next, next, uh, you know, shift. Uh, next shift, can we just rush? Sure, oh, sure. it's my break. I would you know, love to. Exactly. So um, I wasn't the best oh. nurse's aide, but I was a good dietary aide, though. 
But then, anyway, it was a good gig, and it got me through, you know, college. And, and what were you studying at school when you were... I was studying just... I was an English major at okay. first and took a lot of philosophy and um, English literature. And then when I went to Boston University, I decided to become a journalism major. It's supposed to be one of the best journalism schools, and that was just a pile of crap. It was just the worst. I had, like perv teachers, you know, me too. I mean, I definitely had a teacher who was like, come into my office and, um, yeah. you know, just another guy who was supposed to, anyway, the experience wasn't great. And I found the, a lot of the journalism students were very conservative and they were very, I thought it was Were they be, mostly male? Yes. I mean, yeah. And I thought, wow, it's just, this is like 19, you know, going on to the late, really late 60s. And I thought, we should be on fire. You know, I thought the revolution is here. I was like yeah. protesting Vietnam and we were, you know, we got tear gassed in the street and the Boston police on horses came and tear gassed us. And we would, I lived on Beacon Hill on, on Joy Street. Um, and so then I was really singing a lot and, and I, I sang at a couple of clubs in Boston, just kind of auditioning, you know, clubs. But mm -hmm. I sort of kind of, well, I took acid and smoked a lot of pot and stuff, and I, but I maintained my school work and everything. And, and I worked, and then I worked for a year after college, and I decided I'm getting out of America. It was after Kent State, and I said, I, I just have to leave this country. It's just a mess, and I'm gone. So I went, my friend Jan Cox and I met up in Europe and hitchhiked around. And that year, like 72, I think, 71, 72, there was a picture of this girl on Time Magazine with a backpack. And that, it was like everyone went there. There were so many Americans and it was, it felt very safe. It felt like Europeans were like, let's help these kids, you know? So mm -hmm. it didn't feel like a dangerous situation to hitchhike. And we actually had never had any problem, um, except once in Southern Italy, but we resolved it by screaming. <laughs> My friend Jan screamed with these two guys. We had never um, decided never take a ride with more than one person. Mm -hmm. And we were desperate to catch this boat. And these two guys picked us up and they were trying to like mess with us. We were in the back seat and they were trying to reach back and, and I started hitting them. Oh. And then Jan screamed so loud that they just stopped the car and to get out. Oh <laughs> but other than that, which is kind of a miracle because the whole summer of hitchhiking was just great. People invited us to their homes and people were just wonderful. So considering that, there was really, it was a kind of miracle not to have anything yeah. bad. It was just mm -hmm. really a wonderful experience. And, and I, I don't know why I didn't busk you know why didn't I play guitar and sing on the street I don't know why I didn't do that I did some singing and I didn't have a guitar with me um, but I did sing you know with other people sometimes you know in people I met along the mm -hmm. way and um, but I kind of felt like I lost this thread of what you know through going to college and then going through Europe and all this I felt like I don't know if I'm going to be a musician you know or I am a musician, but I didn't know if I'd ever be able to do that professionally. I got to Athens really through the hand of fate because when I was hitchhiking, Jan Cox went home after the summer and I said, I have to go to Ireland. My mother's people are from Ireland. I've got to go there. 
So I hitchhiked all across Europe, part of Europe by myself, and got over to Ireland and, and put my thumb out and somebody picked me up and said, I'm going to Aranmore Island. And I said, well, I'm, I'll go there too. And it was just an island and I took a ferry over a boat. It was called a Cara or something. It was like a big rowboat. Mm -hmm. And I got in that and went to the youth hostel there. And there I met my future ex-husband, Brian Cocaine, C-O-K-A-Y-N-E. What a great last name. I know, I could have been <laughs> For Kathy. that time. Fred Schneider is so mad, I just could have been Kathy Cocaine. Why didn't you just like, marry, yeah, why didn't you just keep, keep that? <laughs> well, I didn't like the cocaine connotation, yeah. you know, but still, it would be a yeah. good rock and roll name. Never too late to change it, I guess. Uh, yeah. Have a whole different, you know. Heavy metal yeah, career or something. Side projects. But anyway, I met him, and I walked around the island, and I came back, and he said, what were your impressions, Katie? And so at that point, everyone started calling me Kate. So that's when my name sort of, I was Catherine, K Kathy. And everyone started, because he's called me Kate. And so we stuck together. We wound up leaving the youth hostel. Um, and we stayed as long as possible, you know, because there's a limit. And finally, the, the they kicked everybody out. Said, well, you all stayed your limit, you know, so you've got to go. So we uh, had one big blowout at the pub, and everyone left, all kind of disgruntled. And we thought, well, Brian and I thought, well, maybe we'll meet up in Dublin, you know. But, you know, I just thought, I guess I'll hitchhike and go back to London and go home. And he said, well, there's this English couple here. Um, living around here. I wish you could stay with them a while. Lo and behold, we were together on the road. Who should come by but this English couple? And they invited me to stay with them. Wow. So I decided to stay with them a while. And then Brian got a job on a fishing boat nearby in Killybegs. And while we were on this island, incidentally, we sold herring on a, on a mule. Um, we went over to Killybegs and got herring and we put them in these panniers this was the local priest's idea because he said nobody gets fish here it's an island but nobody can buy fish so we bought this fish over and walked around with this mule and just went all over the island and then everyone was like oh come in and have a drop at the pier you know and we'd come in they give us a shot of old bush mills whiskey which was down the road and everyone had people had like dirt floors and beautiful houses like beautiful there were no cars there was like one car on the island it was just so beautiful and people didn't have electric lights and, and these people were so nice it was just like going back in time though it was amazing mm -hmm. um so when we left there um we went up to newcastle and brian worked on a fishing boat and i worked at uh, the what's it called anson hotel and pub as a barmaid and I did that for a while, and then we finally went back to America because my visa ran out. And so my friend, old friend Jen Cox, who I went to Europe with at first. Shout out to Jan. <laughs> she was like, oh, you have to come see me. I'm just in a, just in this, like, I'm having a nervous breakdown or something. You have to come see me. Whatever excuse was, she said, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. come see me. I'm living in this sort of uh, commune in South Boston. So we went there, and the people there were about to drive down to Georgia to hike the Appalachian Trail. So that was another hand of fate, brought me to Athens. Um, so we went, we went to Athens with these people. And then one of the guys said, oh, my friend 
you know, I live in Athens, and I know my brother can give Brian a job without a green card. And we found this house that was $15 a month. That was this little love shack in the middle of a field. So we were there for like a whole year doing just a back to the land thing, and that's where we had the goats. And um, we had chickens, and I had a pet chicken named, um, oh, he laid blue eggs, Hawkeye, my little chicken that laid blue eggs. So I used to ride my bicycle to town and give our friends goat milk and blue eggs. And, um, and were you still with the hippie hair at this point? Yes, and, yes. I okay. saw I even longer than ever. My hair was really long then. It was like down to here. And how old were you at this point? You were in your 20s? 20s, yeah, like 23 mm -hmm. or something like that. Okay. 24. Yeah, I guess I was like 24, 18, 24. Yeah. <laughs> and so after a while, I ha one of us had to get, well, we had some odd jobs. I, we bailed hay. We did a few, you know, but basically we lived on our, you know, we grew a huge garden and we befriended the neighbors and uh, we just hung out with the neighbors, you know, old Mr. Nunnally and Claude and Alma. And um, <laughs> so we, um, after a while, though, I got a job in town at the um, Center for Continuing Education in Athens. And my job was setting up media which is a joke because I can hardly use our TV remote, but, you know, I had to set up these uh, slideshow. I could, I could run a slide projector, though, like nobody's business. So I, could, I ran the slides for these conferences, and there were a bunch of people working there. It was a student job. But, um, so then I got to know all the people from Athens. I got to know Jeremy Ayers and Robert Waldrop and, um, and you know, I, through and Bradley Peterson, and through them, I, you know, I met Fred, and then I met... Keith and Ricky, and then I met Cindy at Halloween. Cindy and I met, and Fred and Cindy. Fred and I met Cindy in Halloween, and we had masks on, so that was interesting. Well, sure <laughs> I made a paper mache mask that was blue. It was like a blue angel, and it had um, wings that extended out sideways, sort of from the face. It, they were, it was a face with wings, but a flying face, I guess. And I draped my hair over the wings. And uh, that's when Cindy first saw me, and she had she and Ricky had dyed their hair with henna, so they had this bright red hair. And anyway, it was an interesting first meeting, and I met Fred. Was he was dancing, and so we started dancing together, and that was it for us. And um, and I met Keith playing. He was playing substitute for for this other drummer called Reb Lord. Reb Lord was busted for pot, so Keith was subbing for him. And uh, Connor Tribble was a singer, and he's still a great, he's a great singer, and he plays in Athens all the time. But um, anyway, that's when I first laid eyes on Keith, and then I met Ricky, and... Um, and this was all, this happened pretty much simultaneously? Yeah, it happened within a few months, you know, and wow. I met everybody, and then I, you know, Brian and I, then we just started, the band started, also by spontaneous combustion when we started jamming one night after eat, drinking this flaming volcano and not eating anything because we didn't have money to do both. Mm. So we decided to drink. And we went to our friend, uh, friend's house to jam. And um, that was it. We started the band. At that point, Brian and I started drifting apart. Um, I think 
his background was very rigid northern England, you know, you got to work all the time. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then he, you know, when he went to Athens, I think it kind of like really blew his mind, the freedom and the, you know, and the kind of, he just really, I mean, he really got into his back to the land thing, but I think he really thrived on structure and stuff. So I think he kind of, um, anyway, we just, we drifted apart and parted ways, but he stayed in Athens for a while and um, worked selling the newspaper there and working on the writing and selling newspaper and repairing bicycles. And he could do anything. And he was mm -hmm. very, po he's a poet at heart. And, um, and I fell for him because he read Wuthering Heights to be out loud in his Northern English and Manchester mm -hmm, accent. So mm -hmm. that, you know, but. That'll do it. So yeah. anyway, but then we drifted apart and the band started taking off and then. So it was the, just this jam session, it was the original members and. Yeah. And wow. okay, well, that's something. 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, who knew it? Because nobody, what really, strikes me as extraordinary is that nobody in the band said, and we'd all played with each other a little bit. Well, you know, I had my high school band and I always played and I had piano in my little shack and Keith and Ricky had collaborated and Fred and Keith used to, you know, they'd smoke weed and Fred would do poetry and Keith would play and Cindy and Ricky did some stuff together, you know, mm -hmm. singing and um, so we'd all collaborated in a way, but nobody ever said, let's start a band. Nobody said, hey, you know, you can play keyboard and let's start, you know, try to do something. It just, it just happened. Yeah, that organic. That one night. Yeah, it just was totally organic. So after that first jam session, um, we wrote a song called Killer Bees, and we never recorded that. And we have somewhere a recording of it on a reel-to-reel -reel tape that Keith Strickland has, hopefully. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so your look, your look, weren't you, you guys were going to parties and stuff, right? With bouffants on and dressed how you dress. And did that, did that come before you integrated that into the band and your name and? Yes, what? I mean, we just hung out and we had a larger group of friends. Um, Owen Scott, whose house we started jamming at who's now a clinical psychologist, but... Um, <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but does, totally. And um, so Jeremy Ayers, who recently passed away, but was a big inspiration for us and also to R.E.M. I mean, his whole lifestyle was art, art, really. He'd lived art, you know, and he was a wonderful inspiration. He painted and drew and wrote poetry, and he hung out with the Warhol crowd for a while, but then he, he's from Athens, so he moved back to Athens, and... Um, Anyway, he was just a big inspiration, and we used to, he'd have parties. We'd go to a Fellini movie at the University of Georgia. They had a lot of great, they had a great music library there. So this is all before iTunes or any, you could access a lot of music, but the University of Georgia had that pygmy music and all kinds of world music. And um, so we had access to that, and um, so we had a Fellini party. Jeremy had this Fellini party, and we had these flaming drinks that sort of caught on fire, and we were laughing, and we were in flames, and, um, you know, it was just doing artistic things, like mm -hmm. in the Deadbeat Club uh, song, Dance in the song. Garden and, and Torn Sheets. We used to do that. Yeah. We had a, a, a party for Robert Waldrop. 
and it was raining and we just we just you know took our clothes off and put these sort of old sheets on and danced around in the rain and it was you know we would do student I guess you know you think you're the first person to do that when you're like in a college town but it was streaking <laughs> um, I think Athens was one of the main like universities that were you know, was such a rich it was such a rich I, I think that that at that point in time it was lightning in a bottle down there right I mean yes yeah I mean what a great music history coming out of I that mean, it was, particular place but nothing I mean of course all the incredible musicians that come from Georgia but I mean James Brown and you know every, mm -hmm. just so many people but in Athens, really, it was sort of Southern Boogie still, you know, nobody, there weren't really any punk bands. I mean, we were really the first, the fans in Atlanta were the first kind of punk band that we knew of. And we had just started, and we, you know, we knew Patti Smith. Um, I mean, Have you come to New York at that point? No, I mean, no. Okay. So we were just, we just started jamming, but we knew about Patti Smith, and our friend Robert had, um, ordered through a magazine her first single called Piss Factory and so we we're like wow wow that's amazing so she wasn't even like you know I, she hadn't had any record out even and Sex Pistols came to town to Atlanta and I couldn't go because I had to work on the paper I was a paste-up artist but I had a straight you know I had a job um, but I had to pay my $15 a month rent somehow and no. so we all had jobs. Fred worked at the health food store, and Cindy worked at the Whirly Q at the lunch counter at the Five and Dime. And she'd make, like, hot chocolate and put, like, this much whipped cream, just like, you know. <laughs> she, I think she worked at a yogurt place, too, for a week or something. Um, and then Keith and Ricky worked at the bus station because Keith's parents ran the bus station. So yeah. um, all their friends, you know, worked there intermittently. Jeremy worked there for a while. Yeah, there really wasn't a scene happening. So the so we made a little demo tape, and the fans said you should go to New York. And we're like, really, New York? So, um, you know, we knew that Blondie and and Talking Heads were there. You know, we'd heard, but it's not like we were really immersed in that scene. Which it was sort of peripheral. Like, oh yeah, we kind of aware of this music, but mm -hmm. it wasn't really what started us. You know, it wasn't like oh we gotta let's this stuff is happening, let's start this band. It just happened that night to, just because we all had this, we were just this five-headed monster that came together, like, you know, all our talents merged in this and way. And when you, you when know. you, when you jammed, was it this kind of East Coast beach B-movie sci-fi kind, I mean, what, what did we sound like at, what did you guys sound like at first? And did you ever discuss what your direction no. would be? But I think Ricky and Ricky really had a lot to do with that sound. With you his know. surf guitar. Yeah, of. with his guitar playing. Mm -hmm. and, and Keith was a drummer. And Keith and Ricky, you know, worked a lot together too. But, um, and then we just brought our sensibilities to it. You know, Fred had his unique voice and his, his poet poetry. Yeah. And Cindy and I just all the, just clicked with the harmonies and the melodies. And it just... And nobody yeah. said, like, wow, let's have three singers, you know. It just, yeah, I mean, who would say that? Who would think that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it just came together that way, you know. But the it just whole happened. thrift store chic kind of vibe. That was just happening in Athens, you know, and, okay. and a lot of people, students, you know, we always 
is thrift shopping's eternal mm-hmm. with students. I go to Athens now, and you know all the girls are wearing boots and dresses. But you guys you know. went way out. I mean, yeah, yeah, it yeah. wasn't like I'm going to pick up this cool jacket and oh, no, have no, we my went look for it. still. It was We were very influenced on. by um, like Fellini. Mm-hmm. We wanted to take it to that level, yeah. to the Fellini level. Yeah. You know, to and you did. Eyelashes Dude. out to there and ha- hair, you know. And uh, so we, we shot, and all, luckily all this stuff was in the thrift store, just wigs and crazy looking wigs and we weren't aiming for glamour really we just wanted we were just thinking of it as costumery that would you know bring us uh sort of an anonymity on stage we wouldn't have to be afraid we would just be another you know we'd be in costume basically and Keith had this little ratty red wig and I remember Ricky was very very shy so he'd almost wear like this basket over his head he had a hat that covered his face and you know, he played with such intensity, but, but back to that sound, you know, Ricky had that, um, surf guitar sound, and that, I think, was really sort of solidified that sound, you know, along with all the other elements that we just brought to it in a natural way, you know, Mm -hmm. so, um, and the harmonies and melodies that Cindy and I had, the way our voices blended is just, you know, along with Fred, it just, came to this real unique kind of sound. Yeah, just so, you were so avant-garde. You're, you, I mean, it was amazing how all these elements came together. Yeah, and, and it wasn't planned that yeah, way to naturally. be like, let's try to sound weird. So once you got <laughs> to New York, what was it like? Would it? How did people react to you? What was the scene like? Were you a part of the Mud Club scene and we were the first, Yeah, we were the first band to play the Mud Club. Mm-hmm. But we went up and played... Well, the rest of them again. I had to work. Um, they went up and brought. <laughs> they brought a tape to um, CBGB's first, and they said no thanks. So they went to um, Max's Kansas City, and Dear France was the booker there, and she said, "Sure, you know." I mean, they didn't. We didn't know we were basically coming on a night when there were like eight bands playing, you know. But we drove all the way up from Georgia. We In like a stage. van, or we had all together. Um, uh, Keith and uh, I mean Cindy and Ricky's parents loaned us their station wagon. We they called it Croton. I don't know who named it that, but anyway, it was named Croton. Was it huge? It was just a big station, big old station wagon. Yeah. I can't remember what kind it was even, but we piled in there and, and all drove up together. And I think we had um, Danny Beard was with us, who put out our first single, mm-hmm. and he has um, Wax and Facts Records in Atlanta, and he put out our, you know, Brock Lobster and 52 Girls. Anyway, he was with us on that first venture, and we drove up, and they said, oh, can you cut your set a little short, you know, because there's a lot of bands, and we had just driven all the way from Georgia. But we only had so many songs, maybe only five songs. So, yeah, we (laughs) we didn't have that many anyway. So we played the songs, and we went right back into the car. We were going to drive straight home. And Danny said, did anyone ask if, you know, they want you back? And we said, no. And so he ran upstairs. I remember him just running up the stairs and dear friend said, yes, we'd love to have you back. So from there on in, we would just drive back to New York. Um, eventually CBGB said, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, you can play Max's and here, you know, because seeing as you just drove up in Georgia. So we started playing both those clubs and we, then we started playing hurrahs. And then we were the first band to play the mud club. And Richard Bach has just come out with a book about the Mud Club. It's called Mud Club. But um, I went to a reading in Hudson, 
and it was all his memories of you know. Oh, I'm wow. gonna get that yeah. in the mud club. I think it's how, really how well Pyro written. was in that book, so yeah. that's how I found out about it. But yeah, but that was a thrill to be the opening band there. And we also played this amazing um, thing. It was a benefit for Semiotext magazine, and it was called the Nova Convention. And Patti Smith played, and William Burroughs was there, wow. and Frank Zappa, and Jeez. Patti Smith. Oh, I said Patti Smith anyway. Yeah. And we you can played. Say her twice. <laughs> and um, it was just an amazing event, and it just kind of really put us in this sort of art, artsy realm, you know, mm-hmm. which um, was very much of the time punk and sort of Warhol and did artistic Warhol, did happenings. Did you ever have any interactions with Warhol? Well, I kept saying, Andy's coming to the show, man. Andy's coming to your show. And I never saw Andy come to the show, but I did meet him once. Um, but I don't know if he ever showed up, but... Um, David Bowie came and Frank Zappa and you wow. know some other people. William Burroughs checked us out and um, so what Allen a Ginsberg. scene! What a scene! So it was a really exciting scene. Except we didn't live in New York, so we would go back to Athens, and I went back to the Goats, and you know we went Gardening. back to our yeah, and we went back to just uh, playing in the. We had a really cool studio in the Morton Building. And the Morton Building is a historic theater where a lot of uh, African-American acts came through. And it's on this, and we have a song called Hot Corner because it's on this hot corner where a lot of African-American, the barbershop, and there was like a rib place. And um, so that was like a little center of town that was African-American. And so this building was very historic. And we had what we were told was the bloodletting room to the funeral home there I don't know it was it was concrete it was in the it was on the ground floor <clears throat> but it was concrete and the back room had these like troughs on yeah, the for side. embalming right so I guess yeah. they were right you know I don't know if we oh. ever really uh checked the history but that's uh, it made sense but and it was kind of creepy and it was cold but we wrote a lot of stuff there and we had a lot of fun um and one, a couple of nights, Keith had to, because Keith has lived in Comer, this town near Athens, but, you know, he could walk, um, or I, I don't, you know, he, he used to cross, take a shortcut and cross this creek on a walk over pipe. Anyway, <laughs> sometimes he has stayed in the studio and we were like, can't you, aren't you creeped out? You know, he's sleeping in the studio you know, but anyway, he survived it. It had one little window at the top. But I remember having gloves cut off, you know, so I could play the keyboard. But we went to Atlanta to buy the keyboard. And we went to look for a Farfisa specifically because we just liked that sound. And it was, um, you know, they were like, we got a B3. We got a lot of B3s. But we found a Farfisa finally and bought that. And, um, you know, we collected with our meager income, we were able to collect a few instruments, and we bought a gong. I don't know if we bought the gong or someone donated the gong, but we used to carry that thing around. And um, you gotta so, have a gong when you're starting yeah, out, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> the fundamentals. Yeah, the gong came in handy. So when you when you came to New York, though, you wore the bouffants, and you when you first came, right? And what what did people make of you? I mean, what what? Well, they thought. I mean. We had a, a hairdresser in Athens named Laverne and did up our hair. And I had really long hair, so she did my hair up. And part of it was long and part of it was up. 
um, and she said, honey, you can move your, you can make love, hang your head over the bed, and that will not move. So she, uh, you know, that was the only time we had real, I mean, other times we wore some, when I look back, I had some really ratty looking wigs, but, um, mm -hmm. and Cindy had long hair, and she just wore her bangs and hair, and, you know, sometimes she put it up in her bouffant, and so we just were sort of experimenting. We didn't, hadn't quite, you know, solidified the look. Um, but the very first time we played, we had uh, fake fur pocketbooks that we turned upside down and made these white afros kind of. <laughs> and we wore black, you know, black and white. Yeah. But, um, so we went to Af to um, New York and played. Um, they but there just, was no one else like you, right? there. I mean, you had the Ramones and Blondie at that time and Talking Heads. Talking Heads were an art band, I mean. Yeah. But... Just, we know, had a really interesting look, and yeah, you know, we're so different. And you're playing like surf music, like I think people know. just well, first of all, some people thought Cindy and I were drag queens, okay, oh, and or they just couldn't quite, or they thought we were from England. People could not compute that we were from Athens, mm -hmm. Georgia, because really it was brewing in all these little towns across America. Like I said, there was a, in Athens, there really wasn't a scene. It w there was no other band playing. Um, when we started, there was nothing, no place to play even, except a folk club that didn't allow us to play there until later. Yeah. Um, and so it's still there, the last resort. It's a restaurant now. But So there was no happening. There was an art, you know, like art students doing, doing parties, and we ran around crashing parties and drinking beer and hanging out together and doing these Fellini parties and fun things. But... It wasn't until we started the band that, you know, other people started like, hey, let's also start a band, you know, and mm -hmm. Love Tractor and R.E.M. and uh, OK, I mean, and uh, Pylon, of course. So, you know, we kind of forged that trail to, yeah. to New York. And I think because we were isolated, like I said, you know, if we didn't live in New York. So that scene, in some ways... We only saw it when we came up there to play. Yeah, which is probably a good thing, right? Yeah, and we hung, We were staying at a friend's house, um, an apartment, not a house, but he had an apartment, George DuBose, who took the first album cover. We stayed in his apartment. It was right next to the Empire State Building, and it had no windows. <laughs> and we stayed there. It was pitch black. It was just pitch black if you didn't have a lamp on. And, and the door locked. Like, you had to lock the door with the key, and Cindy had the key, and she locked us in. And then she locked us out. And, you know, I remember that being in that apartment, because it was crazy, you know, because it was only one key, and you couldn't lock oh, the door. no windows. And so I remember you'd walk down and go out on the sidewalk, and you couldn't walk out. There's so many people. It was like a river, you know, so you had to just step out and go. You know, you couldn't <laughs> like contemplate. Like a jump rope thing where you have to exactly, jump in exactly, at the right time. It was exactly like the jump rope. Yeah. You couldn't stand Cindy's there and look gone. up at the sky and think like, <laughs> yeah. well, you where had will to I have go? There would be no texting. So, um, <laughs> you get swallowed up. I think just, I don't know, people say we looked, you know, so strange. But to us, of course, it was just what we were wearing at parties and what kind of the Athens, you know. A lot of people were starting to wear thrift store stuff. But we did take it. We were conscious that um, we were going for this Fellini-esque kind of thing. And Diana Vreeland 
the 60s Vogues. We looked at a lot of those pictures. And so I patterned my makeup that way. I did this crisscross with the white here. Yeah, and so yeah. I, I did some really dramatic makeup. And I had never even worn makeup before that. I didn't, my mom didn't really, like a lot of people but say. Yeah, like you said, you were a hippie. Like, you yeah. Know, and my natural. mom wasn't a big makeup queen. You know, so many people tell me I used to sit and watch my mom put her makeup on. But she didn't really do a lot of makeup. So mm -hmm. She never really taught me the art of makeup, so I was able to uh, just invent my own look. <laughs> so, so getting uh, deeper into your look, it was a way for you to kind of, it was like your armor, right? Where, where you could go on stage and do things that, I mean, yeah. normally you couldn't. You wouldn't be able to do, maybe? Yeah, like I had uh, this dress that was kind of like um, a, almost like a space suit. It was green. It was almost like a Star Trek um, dress and we had some friends make outfits and we found thrift store at first of course it was all thrift store stuff and friends of mine saw us one of the very first shows at, at Max's or CBGB's and they were watching us and my friend Barbie I'm so good friends with her she said look look what the little one's doing look what the big one's doing <laughs> talking about Cindy and me <laughs> she's like look look what they're wearing look what they're doing and then she said during the break which you know we'd play at like 11 or midnight, and then we played 2 a.m. So in between, we all went to this place called Phoebe's. Um, and, yeah. you know, we'd have, I don't know, eat or something. And um, it was just really, you know, when she said we looked really sad, we were in the dressing room in between, and we all looked really tired. And she said when we went to the break to go eat, we had on even more outrageous outfits. Like we changed it to some crazier outfits than we were on stage even. So, I don't know, we just had so much fun thrift shopping and getting these, you know, it just also happened to be a, just a treasure trove in the thrift store, I guess, in Athens, because I would love to stuff. see, like, a retrospective <laughs> of your costumes and outfits, like, at FIT or something. I, I wish I had kept, I mean, I have the first album cover outfit, and I think I might have the second album cover outfit, but... You know, some of those crazy outfits, I just got rid of them along the way. And, oh, man, I wish I had them because... Yeah. Does Cindy have stuff? I mean, do you... She has a lot. Yeah, she yeah. has... I don't know if she can Because kept... she pretty much stayed in Athens. I mean, in Georgia, right? I mean, well, she we didn't all... move around like you did. No, we all moved to Mayapak when we first got signed to a record company in 1979. Mm -hmm. We... Um, Signed with Warner Brothers, and we, our manager at the time, Gary Kerfer, said, "You gotta, you gotta move. You gotta leave Athens." And we're like, "Why?" He said, "We gotta be near the airport." Oh my God, you're kidding! I know. And he wanted us to be under his control and near him, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and then it was like an adventure. So I didn't really want to leave my farm and goats and all, but, you know, what would happen? I guess if we had stayed there, but we just all thought, "Well, why not? Let's, mm -hmm. you know." But we didn't move to New York. We moved to. Putnam County near Westchester in this one house. It was like The Shining. And we lived in the same house, and that's yeah. not a good idea. No, I can't believe you and stayed these, together. I was just going to say. I mean, how did you how'd you stay together as a band? That didn't last. It lasted a couple of years. Fred was the first to move out, <clears throat> and then we were on tour a lot of that time. So yeah. we really... In the same vehicle, though, right? And Yeah, but... Um, we were able to, we, it was a big house and it was on a lake. And so I lived in the attic part, which I thought was the best part of the house. It was really like it, on its own. It had its own floor. 
and it was all painted this Robert Waldrop painted it a really wonderful pink color and it was like a garret you know it was great mm -hmm. um, but there were wings you know like Cindy and her husband had this wing they weren't married yet but um, and Fred had a room on the other side so and then Keith and Ricky had uh, over the garage across the street they lived up there <laughs> so we had a sort of separation but it was crazy, you know, yeah. to live together. So we all wound up moving. Uh, we sold the house. We moved to New York City, and we all moved to our separate places. And so we were there, we, okay. you know, quite a while. Mm -hmm. And then after Ricky died in 85, um, we, well, we still continued to live in New York City, but Keith Strickland, the next year, decided to move up here to Woodstock. And I went with him to look around and our friend Laura Levine up here invited us to come stay with her at her parents cabin so we went there and we looked around and Keith found a place to rent and I wasn't even looking really but I found this great little cabin and I bought it um, uh, so you know I've been coming up here since 87 okay. Oh, wow. okay and and I moved here permanently in 2000 but <clears throat> But so we all kind of, Fred's still in the city, and Cindy eventually moved down to Atlanta. But she lived in the city for quite a I while. I didn't know that. Okay, I didn't know she lived in the city. I thought she was always, always remained somewhere in no, Georgia. No, no, she loved New York City. I mm -hmm. mean, she really loved living mm -hmm. there. Okay. But, um, so so when your first, uh, when, when what, Rock Lobster was 78, um, when your first album, two albums, uh, Private Idaho, came out, um, how did that feel to you? Did you feel like, okay, this is going to be forever or, you know, this is it. This is what I'm meant to do. I'm going to stick. We're all going to stick with this. Yeah, I, I mean, think. Um, and how exciting was it and how, what was it like? It was really, really <laughs> exciting. It was, um, I mean, all these record companies were coming to court us down in Athens. Um, and Virgin Records, they... Um, you know, they really, and they were really nice, and they really wanted to sign us, and we we had a manager, a friend named Maureen, and she's she's still a jury consultant, and I remember her holding these offers, you know, one in each hand, like some record contract, and saying, y'all, I don't know what to do, <laughs> and we didn't know what to do, <clears throat> and Ricky had bought a book about, like, and, and she used to go to parties. Record deals for dummies. <laughs> and she's no dummy, but, you know, yeah. still, like, what do you do, yeah, you know? Yeah. And uh, so anyway, she she was smart, and she set up our tour and everything. And we, we did, before we got signed, we toured, and we went to Canada, we went to Montreal, and, oh, it was so exciting, you know. And we went, played in Ohio, and we played, we, we stayed with Per Ubu, and, you know, the, uh, what's the singer, um... Anyway, we stayed on his floor or something, and he started playing music in the middle of the night, like blasting music. I can never figure that out. But anyway, we, you know, we stayed. At, uh, we did that whole tour, and the, and Ricky um, and Cindy's parents then bought us a van that they loaned us, really gave us to use. So that was really a lifesaver. You know, mm -hmm. just yeah. that one thing helped us so much to have. You know, to be able to travel around yeah. and tour, and we were playing all these places, and we, you know, besides New York, so that really got us. I think we played Philly at the Hot Club, and we played the we played in Texas, and 
met ZZ Top down there. And so we, we did all these, you know, played all these places. And then we started getting this, you know, real buzz going. And so all these record companies all of a sudden, you know, were sniffing around and interested. And Seymour Stein was really interested in us. Um, and he has great musical taste. And we just actually inducted him into the... Was a Hall of Fame. He was yeah. in the Hall of Fame, whatever yeah, yeah. Hall of Fame it was. But he asked us to induct him. And it, it surprised me because we never did sign with him. But he, you know, he was a, a really one of the last sort of music guys who really loved music and, mm -hmm. and had great taste and knew music. But he wanted to sign you? He really you, wanted you, to you sign us. Didn't go with and he him. had Sire Records and he signed yeah, Talking right. Heads. But yeah. our manager sort of was pitting that against Warner Brothers and, you know, and. And actually, it was um, Talking Heads, Tina and Chris, who said, we want to introduce you to our manager because, you know, Maureen didn't know, I don't know what to do. <laughs> so not to characterize her as, you know, yeah. but I mean, she had a really great That's accent. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And she used to go to go to parties where we go to, we went to um, Debbie, Debbie and Chris Stein, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein's apartment, and she brought a blender and she said, daiquiris on and she would bring that blender and all the ingredients to daiquiris and make these daiquiris and the party would they start. They live up here too, right? Do they? Debbie? Does Debbie live up uh, here? Chris. Chris does. Yeah, but I don't know okay. if he does anymore. But oh, he, had, he did. Uh, yeah, he did for quite a while. But um, he, I think he still comes up here. And, but, um, and Debbie would come up too. But uh, So well, daiquiris on call. And... Um, <laughs> I don't even know what the question was We're going to be saying anymore. that now. I know. <laughs> Daiquiri's on call! That's going to be the new thing for us. <laughs> so, I mean, that that's just part of the scene where you're, you know, going to Debbie, Harry, and Christine's apartment, oh. and you're making, and you're, you're, you're sort of going through record offers, record yeah. deal offers. Yeah, and, they had, and they had their gold records just stacked up against the wall, and we were like, wow, oh my God, you know, they just yeah. have them in a room there, just not even hung up, and... These wouldn't be hung up except my friends put these up. But, um, <laughs> oh, these just, yeah, I got a look at everything. But so Virgin Records, Seymour Stein, and they would come down to Athens and, and you know, sort of take us to dinner. That's, that's what we thought we were going to get a free dinner. <laughs> that's how we were thinking. That's how business-minded savvy we were. Free dinner. We weren't even thinking, like, I wonder what the off wonder, you know. It's like, what are you going to order? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wonder where they'll take us. So anyway, um... Then when we were introduced to Gary Kerfers through, um, you know, through Tina and Chris, he said, oh, well, I'll work with Maureen, you know, but that wasn't going to work out. And she didn't want to do that. So we had to kind of, you know, we had to cut her loose, which wasn't good, wasn't fun. Yeah. Um, and we wound up like, the like two days after we fired her, we wound up snowed in with her what was an ice storm in Athens in the, in the same house oh. at a friend's house but anyway <laughs> we're friends now again yeah. yeah we all made peace but you know that happens a lot with bands they have first manager and then it just can't no. get to the next level mm -hmm. so you know Gary got assigned to Warner Brothers and Island Records which was amazing because Island Records for England and, and some other territories he also produced our record, first record, and he also, we recorded at Island Record, you know, at mm -hmm. Compass Point in the Bahamas, and we stayed in his house, and we rented the tambourine for $20 a day, unbeknownst to us, but, um... <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, 
But you know, Savvy. it is it's crazy how the music business was. How they well did they know. did they did the label come step in and say, um, you know, you got to amp up your look or you got to you know do Never. this with your sound? They didn't. They Never. let you alone. They didn't know what the hell we were. Right. I think that's because they didn't know what it was. They were just watching mm-hmm. the show. They yeah. didn't know what category <laughs> to put us in, mm-hmm. and and we also had great uh, advocacy from Karen Berg at Warner Brothers and. Um, Stephen Baker yes. and Karen Berg, I know Stephen Baker. Yes. and they were amazing, and mm-hmm. they and I think they really kind of they were the ones that nurtured us. And no one ever said, no one said, "Man, you got to ch- you know amp up your look or be your style." And mm-hmm. and um, Chris Blackwell, to his credit, as a producer, really didn't do anything. He his idea was just sound like you do on stage, and we we're like, what? And he's, and even, you know, I played guitar on 52 Girls, and and I played the bass keyboard parts. And he said, you know, and I think uh, Ricky could have played the second guitar part better. But he said, no, no, I want you to play what you play on stage. You play exactly what you play. And, you know, I want everyone to play what they play and sing what they sing. And I'm not going to add any sort of production. And that was a genius move. Yeah. Although we heard, we thought, oh, my God, the record just sounds like, us bare bones but that was a really genius move on his part to realize that you know we should sound like we sound yeah, and like not a grittier playing a house party yeah, yeah. and yes. that was really you know if we had had the chance we probably would have you know p- picked a producer that would augment our sound or mm-hmm. but i mean i think any producer then would have realized punk is punk you know right but still that was great and so the record came out and it sounded like us. Do you categorize yourself as punk? I mean, I mean, not no, that you can pick no. a category, you, one yeah, category, but we were never. Well, we were never punk. We were new wave because we mm-hmm. came after. Right. So, which is a kind of weird category. Mm-hmm. It was like the the new wave. It was a record company marketing marketing. You okay. know, in fact, we played that this punk festival, the first Atlanta punk festival in Atlanta. Well, of course, it was Atlanta. It was the Atlanta Punk Festival. But there was a, a band called The Knobs that featured someone with a, a wooden leg that they sawed off during the show. It was really punk. And, yeah, and we played that. You can't get that. more punk than that. And they had um, the record company had brought, um, and this is, I guess, when we had just signed with them, they brought um, some posters or stuff that said, get behind the new wave before it gets behind you. <laughs> It's wow. a great slogan. Yeah. So we thought, you know, what does that mean? That's what us. Is, <laughs> what is new wave? Yeah, that's us yeah. exactly. But you know, it was it was there was a there was a second wave of, of musicians that you know came along then. So and REM started right after we did pretty much, but they're not really new wave. I don't know if they're considered. I, I wouldn't consider that was like the, the next wave. wave. Yeah, <laughs> tidal wave. Yeah, like southern rock maybe, yeah. but with a new wave twist. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, College but, radio. So how did it work writing wise? Because I mean, with three, I mean, you're you're all you all contribute writing, and yes. do you run it by do you run it by one person, and then you all? How does it work? It's very unusual. It's very collaborative. Um, I mean, there are some exceptions of songs that you know Ricky wrote with uh, like Fifty Two Girls with with Jeremy Ayer's lyrics, but and uh, for the most part we jammed and that process brings this amazing uh just kind of spontaneity and unpredictability to 
writing because who could, you could never sit down and just think of this like, okay, even if you just sat down at the piano by yourself, you wouldn't think of going, you know, tin roof rusted, let's stop the music and do tin roof rusted. Um, yeah. You know, Fred claims that he's, precipitated that by saying you're what well he just he did i guess yeah but everyone's got their version that's the thing you know you get into sticky territory when you start breaking it down it's like i said that and i did this but actually it was very collaborative and we would i remember we'd make a tape we'd do it all on cassette tape first we had a reel to reel but then we had a cassette tape and we had a double cassette tape so we'd make a library of the best bits and then we'd make a library of the library and so we'd you know, just edit it down, just basically. Just um, to, And then we'd memorize those parts. And then a lot of the songs didn't really even have um, a chorus, to, like Dry County didn't have a chorus till the end. And But some of the early songs, um, you know, the, it didn't follow your normal linear, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, any kind mm -hmm. of pattern like that. And um, I think that's because we, it was strung together like a collage almost from the jam. So it'd be like, oh, and we couldn't get it all in there. It'd be like this great harmony, and you'd hear it in the background, and we'd try to recreate that. And you know, and and Cindy and I even had harmonies where we would cross. Like I would start lower, and then I'd go up, and she'd go. You know, it wouldn't even be like a a harmony that was. Um, you know, I'd sing the low part, and she'd sing the high part. It was just we'd actually switch parts in the middle, and we would just do it that way. So it was very unusual the way that the song structures were. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the songs could have been, might have been better if we had actually had a chorus. But um, <laughs> but anyway, it made it very unique. And also the, the jamming. Um, and so we did that. We would listen and collectively. And I remember picking out a lot of parts, even Deadbeat Club, I, I, that Cindy's intro. I heard that on the tape. I said, that has to be the beginning, that I was good, I, I could talk. Song. I said, that's got to be the start, you know. And yeah. So we picked out these parts and said, let's, okay, let's build the song. Yeah, and, I love that song. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about Ricky and his passing and not stopping the band for a few years, I think, yeah. right? You stopped writing. Um, where were you in your... What 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 was it like like the him having HIV then? Did you know he had HIV or was it just when he got so sick that it you? It was just awful because we didn't know, um, and he had sworn Keith basically to silence. So none of us knew, and we knew like gay cancer, so called, was going around, and this was eighty five, eighty four, eighty four. Okay. Well, Ricky died in 85. Okay. But, um, you know, around 84, and, and we were writing, bouncing off the satellites. So we were meeting. Um, at that point, Keith and Ricky and Cindy had a, a, a building, a small building uh, in Manhattan. And we were meeting. We were writing there in the basement of it. Back to the basement. But um, so I remember you know, Ricky getting thinner and thinner, and Fred and I were saying, and Cindy had not a clue, but we were all concerned. We are like, Ricky's getting thin. And, you know, he said, and this happened in a pretty short period of time, but, um, you know, he said, oh, we stopped eating Mexican food. And then Fred and I discussed, you know, do you think Ricky has AIDS? But but I said, well, Keith, we, Keith would be showing 
you know, he'd crack, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and we'd ask Keith, everyone asked Keith, is, is Ricky okay? And asked Ricky, but then we'd ask Keith, is Ricky okay? And he goes, sure, yeah, he's fine. You know, he did not crack at all. And so I was convinced, you know, I wasn't convinced, but I, I just didn't, and part of me didn't want to think, right. I guess, is denial. Maybe that's what Cindy, where Cindy was coming from, yeah. maybe, right? I, I guess part of it's denial, and mm -hmm. also when you see someone every day, and, you know, you just don't notice, maybe that's dark reality, but um, one day he didn't show up for a rehearsal, and I remember being kind of mad, like, damn, you know, he just didn't show up, and then I thought, uh-oh, you know, wonder what's going on, and, um, and the next day Keith called me and said, Ricky's in the hospital, and He's like this was Keith, in New York? Yeah. And, and Keith was very emotional. And he said, Keith, Ricky might die. And I was, I just, I've never been, I mean, my parents have passed. My brother passed away. I have never been so affected because I was so shocked, you know. I just was so, I just couldn't believe it. Because I've been seeing him every day, you know, and just about. And I just couldn't, you know, just, I, I couldn't believe it. And when he did die, I mean, I, afterward, the day after the funeral, we, we just drove immediately down to Athens. We just, just the next day, we just all drove to Athens. And um, we just, I can't remember, we just got in one car and drove down there. I think it was Robert Waldrop and Keith and I and... Maybe Cindy and her husband went separately, but or flew. But we just drove down, and after the funeral, and there was a, a friends of ours had a spontaneously just offered to have this reception, you know, like an after the funeral reception, which was great. Everyone got wasted, and the next day we decided we were going to go camping, and we took Jeremy Ayers, me and Rick, and me and Keith, and um, Robert Waldrop, and Jeremy Ayers went camping wow. up in the mountains and we weren't even prepared we were just like we got to go into nature you know and it was it was it was crazy because we we're all so emotional and we smoked some pot and Robert Waldrop uh he saw these hunters and he he thought we we got shot here <laughs> it was just like we were really <laughs> crazy kind of camping trip but it was just a couple of days but anyway we went up to this one spot in the north georgia that had like virgin forest and it was like um it was interesting anyway it was amazing but afterward i had a really horrible the worst cold or maybe i had pneumonia i don't know but i was really sick after that for quite a while it really affected me um you know i i, I was and cindy was just catatonic you know for months and months she just curled up in a ball and um it was very very devastating and i just you know i just thought well i didn't know if we could ever come back from that but you know eventually we started thinking wow it's what do we have here this amazing thing that could also kind of bring ricky's spirit back to us and um it was definitely healing to, mm -hmm. You know, music is such a healing thing, and it was definitely a healing thing to get back together yeah. and start writing again. And a lot of that record, Cosmic Thing, is is about our time back in Athens. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, you had huge commercial success in like twelve years after your first album, right? Um, what was that like, reaching that? 
level of success and MTV and people seeing you and, you know, I mean, that must have been, that's when you became, you know, superstars, icons, right? For a cosmic thing. Yeah. Well, it started out in a slow burn, you know, because it started out, we just did that album for ourselves. Um, and back to when Ricky was working on Bouncing Off the Satellites, um, he finished that record and the record company, that's the only time they ever said anything. They said like, oh, go back and write a hit. And that's, you know, mm. when we thought possibly Ricky was nervous. That was another reason we did, we thought, well, maybe he's just really nervous because the record, it's the first time the record company ever said like, go back and write a hit, you know. So mm -hmm. we were working on doing that when, just before he died. Oh. So they didn't promote that record. They just let it sink. And we did some promotion, but we couldn't tour. We couldn't even think about touring. So, you know, that record really got just kind of dropped in a way. They put it out, but they didn't promote it at all. And then, um, so then when we did Cosmic Thing, we just said, we don't care. We don't care about the record company or anything because maybe they wouldn't even promote it, but we just want to do this for ourselves. And we put it out and we started, you know, touring again in clubs and then we started then it started picking up momentum and then it was like oh now you guys you know let's play in theaters and then wait a minute you guys are playing in really big places and yeah. we're going to Australia and we're going you know back to Europe and we had two tour buses and um, so you know really but it took off in a slower way you know I mean it kind of um, took a little bit of time for it to gain, especially Love Shack, to be played. It was really college radio that broke it. And college radio started playing it, and then, you know, then it got to be commercial success. So mm -hmm. it really takes, I guess, a lot of... Uh, and I do believe that the record company recognized that they hadn't pushed... They had a good record in Bouncing Off the Satellites, and I think they were going to put something behind this. Wow. So I think it takes a team, you know, to make a record break like that it yeah. takes the record company and a great album and the band touring yeah. mm -hmm. constantly working yeah, yeah. And, and what did it what did it feel like to you to like I mean to to be completely recognizable to you know to to not be able to really go out like you used to maybe without that being... never you know strangely strangely enough I guess the wigs and stuff worked because mm. Cindy and I once actually played our show, took our, you know, we didn't always have wigs. We had a lot of times combination of hair and hair pieces and all, but this time we had wigs. We took them off and sat in audience for the next, I don't know, there was a festival or something, and no one even knew who we were. Wow, really? It's amazing what yeah. hair will do. <laughs> I mean, people don't expect to see, you know, they see yeah. this huge hairdo and then they yeah. see, you know, they don't think, they don't even think that's a wig. I yeah, mean, they it's think the that's Sia thing, yeah. right? It was, it's you before <laughs> you yeah, did yeah. it first. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's working for her. Yeah, sure is. Thanks to you guys. Um, so you collaborated with incredible people, with the Ramones, right? With... Iggy Pop and how did the Ramones come? Michael, I mean REM. I love. I, I mean, I. It was it Mike Mills that was just talking about shiny happy people and how they kind of wrote it as a joke. Yeah, yeah. And it's the song that they're known for now. Because you, because you <laughs> elevated. Yeah, I think that's in large part right because you're on that record and you. 
you're so authentic in this. I love love that song. I mean, it really makes me happy, and the video is very happy. It makes a lot of people happy. I mean, you know, I felt like, yeah, that song was a little bit of a, and that's why partly they asked me to sing on it, because it was like B-52's happy style in a way. Not that our songs are all that happy, happy, but, you know, it's... It was definitely, um, you know, and they they say now it was about the Chinese Revolution. Or yeah, something, very but, deep and know, dark. You know. <laughs> but and and April Chapman, who was um, Michael's really good friend and my really good friend, she uh, teaching third grade, and her students did the backdrop for the video. Oh. And all these people from Athens were in it. And it was just, it was really Catherine Diekman, who's a really wonderful filmmaker, did the video. So the whole thing was really fun. And I know Michael was really into it. He made up this dance that we did. And, you know, the whole atmosphere was fun. So, you know, I guess later when something like that becomes, you start to become known for that song. And it's not reflective of how they really are mm-hmm. normally, I guess. Right. You know, catalog, irritating, yes. you know, but... Uh, how many times does that happen to people who, you know, yeah, like they become known for dead skunk in the middle yeah, of the road? Right. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I love, I love Candy. I mean, I love that song so much. What was it work? What was it like working with Iggy? Well, that was really through Don was because he was mm-hmm. producing that record and he had produced, you know, Cosmic Thing, half of Cosmic Thing, and good stuff. And um, it was great. I mean, Iggy was on a roll he was really singing in a great voice he was funny and just so warm and it was great it was really fun there's Doing so the much energy and raw energy in that song i love it i love your voice in it i just and what was great is they just both in with rem and iggy pop they just said just go for it they never gave me any direction like oh well don't just smart. sing on this part or just you know i i just sang whatever and they just it's because let me Kate do it, Pearson. you know. But some, you know, I've sung with other people that, um, well, some little band that I thought it was nice because there were like six guys and they wanted, oh, you know, my dream is to have, you know, a, a sing with them. And it was just awful because they tried to tell me exactly what to do, you know, and it was horrible. But that was the only bad experience I had. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, everyone usually just says, just go for it, you know, just do what you want to do and mm-hmm. sing where you want to sing, so... And it works out. Yeah, and Iggy Pop <laughs> said, even on that verse, you know, he said, change it if you want, or do, you Did know. you? Did you did you play around with the lyrics? A little bit. I don't, I don't think it changed it much, but mm-hmm. I might have changed a word or two or mm-hmm. something. But, you know, just sing it how you want to sing it and all. Yeah. So. And how was it, like, working with the Ramones? It was you and Cindy, right, that sang yeah. on a track. And that was kind of through with um, uh, a Japanese band called The Plastics, too. Yeah. Um, um, well, they were on the Toshi. scene, right? But yeah. Did you know? Do you probably knew Joey? I mean, right? From yeah. Oh, yeah, on yeah, the yeah, scene. yeah, yeah. Oh, I used to see them because Gary Kerfus was their manager, mm-hmm. also with Talking Heads and the Ramones. And so when we signed with him, I went, saw so many Ramones shows that I would just jump up and down, up and down for an hour. I love the Ramones. Yeah, I mean that whole Phil Spector thing with the Ramones and then you guys with the surf music it's it but you're both kind of punk and you're both yeah I love that I, I mean love the, Ramones, the roots there god they were so much fun to see live it was just the energy and suicide the band called suicide mm-hmm. and you know hearing Blondie and talking heads it was just mm-hmm. and Devo was around and yeah um, what a great time I mean my and god Patty Smith she yeah. was like a you know she's like a, um a uh, bruja what, no, what do you call it? 
know. She's like a, you know, like a Mexican witch. She's not Mexican. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, you yeah, know, yeah. she's like this, you know, uh, she's conjurer. like a conjurer. Yeah, she's <laughs> a goddess. You know, yeah. she, when she performs, it's like she creates a spell, you know. Yeah, yeah, there's something, something happening. So, something something otherworldly. Mystical. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah I agree. Um, so you live up here now with, you've been living up here with your wife, yes. Monica, right? And mm -hmm. you've built this kind of life where you're also running a motel and yeah. don't you have an Airstream? We have Lazy um, Desert too because we had two floods like 2000 and uh, Irene and um, there was another flood after that and the Airstreams got flooded. So we had Lazy Meadow oh. just down the road mm -hmm. and we had... The meadow, which had these airstream hook, well, they had trailer hookups, so we got a bunch of airstreams. I saw one on the side of the road, just down the road, for sale, so I screeched to a halt, you know, and bought that. And 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 also, the when I bought Lazy Meadow, it was like, oh, this is going to be so much fun to just decorate the rooms and, you know. Mm -hmm. and All mid-century. Yeah, and themes, and oh, it was so much fun to shop. But then there was, a, like, new roof and the air, uh, I mean, the, um, the, uh, Water treatment and septic. Yeah, that mm -hmm. Monica really came on board to help me, and that's mm -hmm. how. I mean, we were friends before that, and then I asked her to help me get get it running as a business, and then mm -hmm. we got together. But um, you know, she really made it run as a business, and she's still running it. We have great people, two people running, you know, the front desk and taking all the bookings. But you know, mm -hmm. I go down there frequently and check things out, and. Um, it's it's just. Do you enjoy great. that? Do you enjoy the entrepreneurial kind of business? Well, because I'm not aspect? running it. Right. So you're able to come in and decorate. You know, and yeah, give and your a, advice and, and just direction glory and, in the you know yeah in the decor decor Best. and stuff. And <laughs> yeah. Change sometimes. Change the paintings yeah. out or do you know get some slip covers new. You yeah. know, just kind of oversee the the decor. But um, and we have three outer properties: Lazy Cabin, Lazy Shack, and Lazy Lodge. Wow. So those are really fun. Um, those are really beautiful. And I just love decorating. I love doing that. Do you again. have, uh, is it, is it, I mean, it's hard to work with your spouse. Do you, do you and Monica oh. kind of make a good team? Right? Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. We totally, I mean, when we did, we did uh, these two rooms, 6A and 6B, it's Annie Oakley and um, uh, Sacagawea. <laughs> And I remember we went to Home Depot and we decided, oh, we're going to do the shower. You know, we're going to line the shower with this kind of corrugated roofing. And, you know, so, and we got, we went and ordered the the sort of Formica boomerang countertops. Mm -hmm. You know, so we yeah. did that together and we mm -hmm. pretty much agree on all the, the decorating stuff. But, um, and we had help, um, too, from our friend Bill Stewart, who's a really amazing interior decorator, designer. Mm -hmm. And he helped a little bit with some of the colors because he knew the mid-century, you know, like mm -hmm. the turquoise number such and such from, you know, he knew exactly ah, like the right like a historian, yeah, yeah, right turquoise and the right, um, you know, red color, sort of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright red, you yeah. know. And yeah. So, so did you worked with Monica before you got together then on yes. this project on this particular um, at Lazy Meadow, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. And then you fell in love while working. On yes, that. and her okay. former girlfriend, who they had broken up, but I also knew her uh, had done some singing with her as the Chanteuse Club, as Joe's Pub. Mm -hmm. I did. Um, I wrote a whole solo record in two thousand. Like well, I started doing it in like the late nineties, and I also did a project in Japan. Um, called Nina, 
that went to number one in Japan, and I toured Japan, and it was with some of the former plastics. Oh, wow, so, that's cool. Um, but it wasn't released in the U.S., but it was just a real amazing, because um, it was collaboration with, um, with Yuki was the other singer, and we just, it was great. It was so much fun. We collaborated um, mm -hmm. on singing, and uh, one of the former plastics, uh, Sakamasan, he did the music, the instrumentation, and Shimo, who was in the plastics, was in the band, and we just had a great time. We toured all over the place and um, ate incredible food. It was amazing. <laughs> it's called the Noodle Tour. <laughs> <laughs> and so around that time, after that, I realized, because they, they told me, uh, they sent me some tracks. Uh, Sakamasan sent me some tracks, uh, like, a month or a few weeks before I was supposed to go over there and record some stuff. So I wrote, I, then I realized I can write, you know, I had sort of a block of writing, you know, solo, mm -hmm. but I realized I could write to a track and, you know, I could write, I mean, this is like a stream open and I could write all this stuff myself. And, um, it was so much fun. And when I went over there and we collaborated and we each did a couple of songs solo too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Yuki and I so that opened up this whole flood of creativity and I started writing and I wrote a whole bunch of solo songs and I was going to do a first solo record and that was like 2001 and then our manager and, and Cindy had written some stuff too and our manager really kind of blockaded it it was a do, different manager but um they were like, oh, you know, wait till Warner Brothers won't release you. And, and they had all mm -hmm. these things that mm -hmm. stall us, you know. And then yeah. and they really wanted another Bees album, which then we start working on Funplex. And, but I had toured, anyway, on doing these songs with um, Sarah Lee and Gail Ann Dorsey. And I also did this Chanteuse Club, which is at Joe's Pub. So we mm -hmm. would write, you know, I'd write a new song, and then I would sing it at this Joe's Pub. And... It was a really fun project too, but yeah. that never really got out into the world. Mm -hmm. you know, so, but it's 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 out there though, right? I mean, it's just not. I still have the songs, but I never really recorded them and put them out. Oh, are you, are you planning on maybe doing that? Or? Well, I have the makings of a second solo record, and um, not including any of those songs, I have stuff that I wrote for my first solo record, guitars and microphones. I have. A few songs that I wrote during those sessions, a mm -hmm. couple with Sia and a couple I did by myself and then, or with other collaborators. And now I've just written a couple of other new songs about, so I have a lot of songs now to put out that I want to have mm -hmm. it come out uh, next Halloween. Because oh, I have a really great song called Every Day is Halloween, so I want awesome. it to come out then. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, we could talk to you forever. Um, I think that's obvious, but... Uh, we end our interviews with asking who is your a strange woman throwback. Who is your strange woman throwback? From someone I was growing up. Someone, anyone to. that kind of you look to to kind of pay, that, that paved the way for you or made you feel like, okay, I can do what, I can be myself and I can go out there and do what I do I think, because of um, this person. Yeah, I think Joni Mitchell was really very important to me. Carol King and Joni Mitchell. But Joni Mitchell, I mean I remember buying her first record and just staring at it, you know, and looking at her long hair and her guitar, incredible guitar tunings, which was very influential to Ricky too. The guitar tunings and and 
strangely enough, everyone in the band was very, I don't know about Fred so much, but Keith and Ricky were very affected by Joni Mitchell, and Ricky was very inspired by her open guitar tuning. So, you know, that was also a mutual influence, um, very important. And we all saw her play in Atlanta, and I've seen her a few times, you know, I saw her orchestral show, and but she was someone, I think, that was of my era, you know, kind of a little bit, maybe a few years before, but she, you know, her first record, I remember in high school looking, just feeling like that was empowering because she went through a lot of the same things. You know, she was married early and, um, not that I was married early, but, you know, she she gave up her child. I didn't have a child. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, she, I, there, were, there were moments when it seemed like maybe she wouldn't, you know, be able to follow her path, and she did, and same with me, and I just feel like her songs and her her um, just innovation and her musical kind of evolution is very inspiring, you know, mm -hmm. that to do whatever you want to do. And, um, to be and, free, right? And, yeah, and she hasn't had the incredible commercial success some men have giving the incredible talent. I mean, she's I had agree. great success, mm -hmm. but you know what I mean? Like yeah. the men yeah. are lionized as gods right? and yeah. you know, Bob she, Dylan yeah. and you know, where she is on that level, but exactly. she didn't get the recognition. Yeah. And I think, you know, but you have to do it for your own, for yourself, you know, and she's painter too. And she's, you know, just very inspiring. I mean, I, I don't know if she needs that, uh, kind of recognition but <laughs> yeah but I think you don't have to need that the thing mm -hmm. is you yeah. do it you know you yeah, do it for yourself yeah. and that's the it's lesson art. we learned for cosmic thing is just do it do it for yourself do it to heal do it for whatever you need you know to write and um you know at this point I feel like I know David Bowie said before he died he said like I, I, someone asked him if he's going to make a video and he said well paraphrasing you know like who wants to see my video you know but it turns out a lot of people yeah, want to yeah, see yeah. it. But, you know, I guess he changed his mind because he did an amazing video for, um, you know, Black Star. But mm -hmm. um, anyway, I just think you have to do, um, you have to do it for yourself, whatever your audience is going to be. And so I do want to release those other songs that I, I wrote. And I'm writing a couple of sort of more protesty kind of a couple of songs that um one I'm collaborating with Alex Sintek who's an amazing mm -hmm. Mexican mm -hmm. artist and mm -hmm. uh we're writing a song about the the wall kind of wow yes so, um, I, yeah, yeah I, we, we need a Kate Pearson album <laughs> right, right now, now. we'd have yeah. to do another Sun Donuts record yes yeah. Sun Donuts <laughs> yes that oh, we really era. do yeah. yeah um but Anyway, thank you so much thank for you. giving thank us you. this time.